بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على عبد الله ورسوله نبينا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين أما بعد فرستي إن شاء الله تعالى I think it's looking at the time of Fajr it makes sense according to what we got from the survey to put another 15 minutes on the time inshallah so from next week ta'ala, we will start at uh, 6.45 and that will just allow everyone who wants to sit in the masjid until the sun rises uh, for them to inshallah be able to pray their two rakah without missing anything from the class and so on and also those people who want to pray Fajr, for example, in a Shariqah, and then they want to come, then inshallah ta'ala that will be, be easy for them inshallah, or easier than it is now. So inshallah ta'ala, it's a small change, we don't, probably don't need to announce it then, but just generally, we're going to start in future, or to, from next week, at 6.45, because we said what we will do is we will track the Fajr time. So inshallah, as Fajr gets later, we'll keep on, making the class slightly later to the point where you know inshallah ta'ala generally we want to start about five minutes after uh, the time for uh, duha prayer begins so that is about now so five minutes after that would be quarter two so that makes sense inshallah we're continuing inshallah ta'ala talking about ar-rihla fi talib al-hadith talking about people who traveled for the sake of hadith and we said that traveling for the sake of hadith is something which has preserved the hadith that we have what is or who is the first person that we know to have traveled fi talib al-hadith Traveled for the sake of learning And the answer to that Probably surprisingly to some people Is Kalimullahi Musa Musa alayhi salam In Surah Al-Kahf وَإِذْ قَالَ مُوسَى لِفَتَاهُ لَا أَبَرَحُ حَتَّى أَبَلُغَ مَجْمَعَ الْبَحْرَيْنِ أَوْ أَمْضِيَ حُقُبًا When Musa said to his servant Who was Yusha' bin Nun I will not I will not stop in this journey until I reach the parting of the two seas or I become overcome with exhaustion and the general story to the ayah is that Allah Azza wa Jal revealed to Musa salam that there was someone more knowledgeable than him because Musa as a prophet believed of course that he was the most knowledgeable person that makes sense but Allah Azza wa Jal revealed to him that there was a person more knowledgeable so when Musa found there was a person more knowledgeable what did he do? he set off on a journey to reach that person and this is the evidence or the beginning of Ar-Rihla fi Talib al-Ilm Journeying for the sake of seeking knowledge 
Because as soon as Musa realized there is someone who has knowledge that he doesn't have, he immediately journeyed to reach that person. As for in the time of Islam, the journey for seeking knowledge began with those groups, those parties that used to travel to the Prophet ﷺ from the Qabail. We call them Al-Wufud. The groups that used to come and they used to travel to the Prophet ﷺ. They didn't live in Medina. They were not from the Muhajireen or from the Ansar. They were from the people who lived in villages and towns outside of Medina. And they used to travel to the Prophet ﷺ to ask him or to seek knowledge from him. And then they used to go back to their people and they used to warn their people about what the Prophet ﷺ or tell their people about what the Prophet ﷺ said. And it makes sense here to mention Wafd Abdul Khais. One of the wufud, one of the groups or the parties which came to the Prophet ﷺ was the Wafd of Abdul Qais. They're one of the most famous groups one of the most famous tribes or parties who came, sent some people to travel to the Prophet And the reason it has such a benefit is what they said. They came to the Prophet and they said, O Messenger of Allah, between you and us is the tribe of Mudar. And this tribe is a disbelieving tribe. And they are waging war against us. So you, you think that the, 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 this group, Abdul Qais, they can't reach the Prophet Because between them and between the Prophet is a warring tribe, a disbelieving tribe who are waging war with them. They said, we can only reach you in an Ashhurul Hurum. We can only reach you in the sacred months. The months where there is no fighting. That's the only time we are able to get to you. So give us a comprehensive statement. We can nukhbiru man wara'ana and this is the benefit they said give us a comprehensive statement which we can inform the people who are behind us with it and we can enter Jannah with it we can inform the people who are left at home and we can enter Jannah and the Prophet ﷺ gave them a hadith why is this so beneficial? 
Because the ulama say this is the perfect niyyah for talab al-ilm. This is the correct intention for seeking knowledge. Like Imam Ahmad was asked about the intention for seeking knowledge and he said that you intend to remove ignorance from yourself and from other people. So if a person seeks knowledge and his intention is only to remove ignorance from other people, then his intention is not correct. And if his intention is to remove ignorance from himself, but he doesn't look at other people, then it's deficient, it's not complete. But the complete intention is the intention of Wafd Abdul Qais. Teaches a comprehensive hadith, that we can inform the people who are behind, and we can enter Jannah. The first person you want to remove ignorance from is yourself. And as you are removing ignorance from yourself, you want to try and remove it from as many other people as possible. And this is the perfect intention for talabul ilm, for seeking knowledge. So these were food, these groups or parties that came to the Prophet ﷺ, they sent individuals, they didn't send the whole tribe. They would send 10 people or 15 people or 5 people, 20 people. They would send a group of people and those people would represent, they would be representatives of their tribe. They would go to the Prophet ﷺ, they would learn from him, they would remove ignorance from themselves, they would go back and they would teach their people and remove ignorance from their people. And the Sahaba, radiallahu anhum wa ardahum, the Sahaba, they took this example on. And they continued they continue to travel for the sake of learning a hadith so one of the things that we see is we see for example the hadith of Jabir ibn Abdullah and this is after Al-Futuhat after the conquests of the distant lands because before the conquests, the Sahaba were generally located in one place, in Medina. As the conquests continued and the Muslims conquered Persia, the Muslims conquered Syria and Sham, the Muslims conquered Egypt, what happened? The Sahaba became spread out. So now it's not easy to find the knowledge you want just in Medina. It's not easy just to go to someone in Medina and say, Remind me of that hadith that we heard from the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam 30 years ago or 25 years ago, whatever. It wasn't, it wasn't easy. So what happened is, the Sahaba used to travel for the sake of a hadith. 
So from Jabir ibn Abdullah that he traveled to Abdullah ibn Unais who was in Sham, in the Levant, yani the area of Syria. And he spent a month to reach him. You imagine, this is Jabir ibn Abdullah, one of the famous narrators from the Prophet The one who narrated the entire hadith of Hajj. And he described the Hajj of the Prophet from the beginning to the end. He travels for a month to reach Abdullah ibn Unais in Syria. To hear from him one hadith. He didn't say, oh Abdullah ibn Unais, tell me all of the hadith you heard from the Messenger of Allah. Sallallahu alayhi wa Just one hadith. Do you remember this hadith? And remember after, as the time goes on, the Sahaba are dying. Maybe there's only one person left who remembers the hadith. Or two people, or three people. So Jabir remembers that Abdullah ibn Unais heard this hadith. So he travels all the way to Syria for the sake of listening to this hadith from him. And then he comes back. And it's said that nobody remembered this hadith apart from Abdullah ibn Unais. And there's another point, and it's just generally where we're talking, we should have mentioned it in the first part really, we're talking about the attention the Sahaba gave to the hadith. Is that the Sahaba used to revise hadith individually and as groups. Don't think they just kept it in their memory and then one day they just said it how they... It's mentioned that Abu Hurairah used to divide his night. A part of his night he used to give for memorization and revising his hadith and a part of his night for the night prayer. Look at how the Sahaba used to be. Don't think they like, and everything was just carved into their mind like stone. They used to revise a hadith. And it's narrated that Abu Hurairah used to revise and read hadith to Aisha radiallahu anha. He used to sit outside of her, her apartment, outside of the door, and he used to recite a hadith to her. And she criticized him. But not for his memory. She criticized him for reading too fast. She heard that hadith from him. She's approving of the hadith. We said that Aisha is one of the founders of the science of al-jahr al-ta'adil. The science of criticizing narrators and approving narrators. So Abu Hurairah comes to Aisha and he starts reading hadith. And she tells him off. She says to him, the Prophet ﷺ did not used to slur his words like you. And he, Abu Hurairah was reading quickly. And Nabi ﷺ, he's reading quickly. Like as the person who has an amazing memory and you see they read like a hadith really, really quickly. He was reading quickly. She said, the Messenger of Allah ﷺ did not used to slur his words like you. If he spoke, he spoke clearly so everyone could understand and he would repeat what he said three times. But she didn't criticize his memory. She didn't say, you didn't memorize this hadith correctly. Like some of the people from the Mubtadi'ah today, what they say that Abu Hurairah, we don't know where he got all of these ahadith from. Abu Hurairah got all of these ahadith, first of all, from 
the dua of the Prophet ﷺ for him. When he was sat in the masjid one day and the Prophet ﷺ said, make dua so that I can say ameen. Because the dua of the Prophet ﷺ is accepted in a general sense. He said, tell me your dua so that I can say ameen. And Abu Hurairah said, I ask Allah for knowledge that is never forgotten. And the Prophet ﷺ said, Ameen. Then his companion who was with him, he got the idea that let me ask for the same thing. Because he got the idea that, wow, that's an amazing dua. But the Prophet ﷺ said, your companion has already preceded you in this. Like in the, the hadith of Al-Qasha, uh, Ibn Mihsan, when he asked the Prophet ﷺ to, to make him from the Sab'in, yani to, to make dua to Allah, to, make, to be from the, the, the 70,000 who will enter Jannah without any uh, account or any punishment. And the Prophet ﷺ said to him, Anta minhum, you are from them. Then everyone from the Sahaba is thinking, wow, that's an amazing thing, let me ask. He said, your companion has preceded you. Or he said, Ukkasha has preceded you. Sabakaka, Ukkasha. So the point is that this is the first reason. The second reason is that Abu Hurairah used to revise. Don't think Abu Hurairah was like sitting around like doing nothing. And every night he used to divide his night into parts. And part of the night he would give for revising what he had memorized and reminding himself of it. And the third reason is Abu Hurairah himself says The reason why he memorized so many ahadith He says That the Quraysh They were involved in tijara They were businessmen The Ansar They were mostly involved in farming And you know working with the land He said as for me I had nothing I had no uh, no, um, like, no skill or no profession Because he was from Ahl Sufa He was from the poor people Who lived in the Sadaqah yani the, the, the area that was given to them for Sadaqah From the Masjid of the Prophet So Abu Hurairah didn't have business to concern him And he didn't have farming or working the land to concern him the only thing he had was just spending the day with the Prophet ﷺ and memorizing a hadith. And wallahi, like as Shaykh Muhammad Hamad al-Ansari rahimahullah ta'ala said, that the only reason these people are angry with Abu Hurairah is because most of what he narrates refutes their belief. That's why they're angry with Abu Hurairah. That's why they criticize the hadith of Abu Hurairah. They say, we don't think he memorized He's reading a hadith to Aisha. She's listening. If he had made a single mistake, she will tell him, you made a mistake in this. That's not what the Prophet ﷺ said. Like she did with uh, Abdullah ibn Amr ibn al-As, like we heard, where she sent Urwa, rahimahullah, to Abdullah ibn Amr ibn al-As to check his memory two years in a row. Then also from the... Yani, those who founded the science of Al-Jarh Al-Ta'adil is Umar ibn Al-Khattab. And he also used to revise a hadith with the Sahaba. 
So in his gatherings he would say, who of you knows this hadith? Like the hadith of Hudayfa radiallahu anhu. Which of you knows the hadith of the fitan? The hadith of the trial that will come, the big test. Hudayfa said, and he mentioned the hadith. And the fitna of a man is in such and such. And Umar said, it's not that I'm talking about, but I'm talking about the fitna that surges like the waves of the sea. And then Hudayfa narrated or mentioned the hadith to Umar. And they had a discussion about it. He said, you have nothing to do with it, O Amir al-Mu'mineen. Between you and it is a closed door. Until the end of the hadith. So the point is the companions used to ask each other about a hadith. And then in this journey when they became spread out, they continued to do this, but they had to travel to do it. So we find that Abu Ayyub al-Ansari radiallahu anhu traveled to Uqba ibn Amir radiallahu anhu in Egypt. When he met him, he said, Relate to me what you heard from the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam with regard to sitr al-Muslim. And he concealing the sins of a Muslim. There is no one left alive who heard this hadith except me and you. So Abu Ayyub wants to check his memorization of the hadith with Uqba ibn Amr. Because he remembers in that gathering that Abu Ayyub was there and Uqba ibn Amr was there and the other people who were there have all since died. So he narrated him the hadith. Then Abu Ayyub got back on his riding beast and went back to Medina. He didn't stay in Egypt for anything. He didn't stay, have dinner, lunch, and he like, let me sit, meet the people. He just listened to the hadith. He got back on his riding beast. He went back to Medina. So this shows us that the companions set the example for the tabi'een. Of traveling for the sake of learning and checking a hadith. And look at the checking. And maybe Abu Ayyub would have narrated that hadith. And maybe he might have made a mistake. But when he doubted his memorization or he wanted to check it. He went to another companion who heard the hadith and he checked it with him. So this tells us in addition to the trustworthiness of the companions. In addition to their reliability in memorization. They also used to cross-check and revise a hadith with each other. And they used to travel when they had... And if they had any doubt about a hadith, they would travel in order to learn that hadith. And that gives you an immense amount of confidence that what is narrated from the Sahaba was reliable. Add to that the statement of Ibn Abbas with regard to the people who began lying. When the person came to the masjid and began to and he narrate a hadith to Ibn Abbas and Ibn Abbas turned his head away from him he turned his eyes and his ears away from him that shows you also that the companions didn't used to take hadith from anyone they didn't just used to like you know maybe somebody would say okay we agree the companions among themselves were reliable but maybe the companions used to take hadith from the tabi'een and just pass them on. 
But Ibn Abbas tells us that that's not the case. When the people began lying, and began taking lying to be something light, we only listen to the one who we know. And we only listen to the one that we trust in that person's memorization and in their knowledge and trustworthiness. And the tabi'een took this on. The tabi'een took this on from the companions and they began to travel for the sake of memorizing and learning a hadith. Because the companions were spread out And he wants to hear the hadith From the companion All of the hadith that he has And then he wants to go to another companion Who is in another city And hear the hadith that he has Then he wants to go to another companion In another city And hear the hadith that he has And he wants to cross check Because if it's possible to get al-isnad, That's what he wants if it's possible to get a high or a short chain, like in Arabic we call it a high chain, meaning the, like as close to the source as possible, then that's what he would do. So for example, they would go and if they heard a hadith and the person told them that this hadith was narrated by another companion and that companion was still alive, they would go to that other companion and travel to them and listen to the hadith from them and cross-check it. And this has another benefit, this cross-checking of a hadith and talab ulul isnad. It has an immense benefit in al-jahr al-ta'adil, in the science of criticizing and approving narrators. Let's imagine that you go looking for a short chain and you have a long chain. So you have a chain of five people to the Prophet ﷺ, but you realize that you can get the same hadith from th- only three people. Like you can get the same hadith with just three people between you and between the Prophet ﷺ. So you go and you hear it from the shaykh of the shaykh of the person who told you. What does that tell you about the two people who were extra in the chain? It tells you that they are hufav. Their hift is correct. Because you heard it from Someone from someone from his teacher. Then you went to that same teacher and you heard the same hadith from them without a single mistake. That tells you that the two extra people, their memory is correct. So if you heard a difference, you would realize that there is a mistake in this person's narration. So talab ulul is not like seeking for seeking a short chain is part of verifying the memory of narrators as well. It's not like we take that long chain and throw it away. Rather, that long chain benefits us immensely. It tells us that the extra people in that chain have memorized the hadith correctly without any mistakes. Because you've basically tested them by going to their teacher and hearing the same hadith from their teacher. Therefore, you have checked that their memorization is correct. And from there you can say, when you do it a number of times, you can say, this person, this individual, he is half a dhabit. He doesn't make mistakes in his memory. Because I 
checked his ahadith with his teacher and he didn't differ anything with what his teacher said. So this is also from the means of checking and verifying and approving ahadith. And you start to see that these ahadith, like people think that they were just written in Sahih al-Bukhari. You know, 220, 230, 250 years after the hijrah, someone just wrote down these ahadith, la wallah. It's not like this. These ahadith were checked and preserved to the maximum possible. And we're just mentioning points, but every point that we'll go through will give you more confidence that these ahadith were preserved and checked. And Imam Sa'id ibn al-Musayyib, rahimahullah ta'ala, the Imam of the Tabi'een, he said, In kuntu la usir, he said, I used to travel fi talab al-hadith al-wahid masirat al-layali wal-ayyam. إن كنت لأسير في طلب الحديث الواحد مسيرة الليالي والأيام. Indeed, I used to travel in seeking a single hadith for night days and nights. And for one hadith, Sayyid al-Musayyib, the Imam of the Tabi'een, who heard from many of the senior companions. But still, you see, what did he used to do? If he heard there was one hadith that he could get, he would travel for days and nights and days and nights for one hadith. Wallahi now, how do we see people to be? I mean, how has the world changed? Wallahi, I mean, people say to me, I, mean, I can't come to the classes I live in. And then he mentions a place that is like, I mean, 20 minutes from here. He says, Wallahi, I live in Jumeirah, it's far from Akhi Jumeirah is 20 minutes from here, 25 minutes from here. It's Wallah, it's far, I can't come. And Ibn Sirin used to travel days and nights for one hadith, not for an hour, two hours, three hours of teaching, one hadith. To hear one hadith for days and nights and days and nights he used to travel. And Busan ibn Abdullah al Hadrami, he said, I used to ride to Egypt from the outlying town, from the faraway towns for a single hadith that I heard. And Amr al-Sha'bi rahimahullah ta'ala said, no one from the companions of Abdullah ibn Mas'ud was more keen to seek knowledge in the horizons than Masruq in Masruq ibn al-Ajda Masruq yani from the companions of Ibn Mas'ud he has Ibn Mas'ud in front of him and Ibn Mas'ud is there in front of him he's not satisfied with only hearing a hadith from Ibn Mas'ud instead he said he used to travel as the narration says fi ufuqin min al-afaq to the far away horizons he used to travel to the furthest areas of the Islamic uh, empire at that time, just to be able to hear a hadith from someone else to confirm what he had heard or to get new knowledge that he hadn't heard. 
Al-Sha'bi said, after he narrated a hadith to a man, he said, I have given you this hadith, or we have given you this hadith for no effort on your part. And the, the people before you would travel for less than this hadith to Medina. And in Sha'bi is saying, the people, I'm giving you a hadith for no effort. I'm just, yani, you're sat here and I'm giving you this hadith for free. When the people would travel to Medina, from the faraway lands, they would travel all the way to Medina for less than what I've given you. And Abu Aliyah, he said, we used to hear a narration in Basra from the companions of the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And we would not stop until we had traveled to Medina and we heard it from their mouths. And this is really important because it tells you that the Tabi'een were not content to listen from the Tabi'een. Like maybe you think, oh, it went from the Tabi'een to the, then the next. The Tabi'een were not content to listen from the Tabi'een. They followed the same principle. We would not stop until we reached the companions of the Messenger of Allah in Medina and we heard the same hadith from their mouths. We didn't want to hear it. The only time they would narrate from the Tabi'een is if they couldn't get the hadith any other way. Otherwise they would, if they could jump and get to the person who narrated the hadith in the first place, then they would travel to that person even if that person was in the far off lands. And from Basra to Medina is not a short trip by camel. And it's not a short trip from Basra all the way to Al-Medina. For the sake of listening a single hadith. Why? Because he heard this hadith from his teacher. But the person who narrated the hadith was still alive. So he traveled to him and he heard this hadith as for the reasons why the companions used to do this or why the tabi'in used to do this why just generally why did people used to travel then the companions their reasons were either to hear a hadith that they had not heard from the messenger of Allah so they wanted to hear it from the person who heard it or to confirm their Memory When there was no one in their city Who had memorized it So he would go For even up to a month of traveling To confirm or to check his memory of the hadith And as for the tabi'een Then the main reason they would travel Is because the sahaba were spread out And they wanted to take knowledge from different Sahaba, they wanted to take it from all of the different cities and they wanted to get, as we said, they wanted to hear the hadith directly instead of hearing it from someone who heard it from that companion. And there were other reasons 
from the reasons are the appearance of fabrication in ahadith and ahadith began to be fabricated this is one reason so the rihla fi talab al-hadith became more when fabricated hadith became more people used to say I'm not going to accept this chain I'm not going to accept this hadith until I travel to each individual and I find out did you really hear this hadith or did somebody make it up so they used to travel for the sake of knowing where the hadith came from and from the examples of this is this hadith from Muammar ibn Ismail that he said a reliable person narrated me the virtues of some of the surahs of the Quran and just as a benefit you should know that probably one of the biggest categories of fabricated hadith are in the virtues of the, of the surahs of the Quran and to the best of my knowledge there is no authentic hadith narrated regarding Surah Yasin at all. And yet you can find a book that is pages full of the virtues of Surah Yasin. All of it is fabricated. Or extremely weak. So a man came and he narrated the virtues of the surahs of the Quran. Except there is one narration in Surah about Surah Yasin, which is uh, any authentic relating to uh, reading it to the person who is passing away Allah knows best but there are very very few yani, these surahs of the Quran there are very few of these virtues are reliable the virtues of this surah the virtues of this surah you read this surah this many times say this surah this many times very very few of them are reliable so he said a reliable person who I trust narrated me a hadith regarding the virtues of some of the surahs from the Qur'an originating in Ubay ibn Ka'b yani this hadith came from Ubay ibn Ka'b radiyallahu the sahabi Ubay ibn Ka'b so I said to the shaykh man haddathak who told you this hadith he said a man in the in the faraway towns told me this hadith and he's still alive so I traveled to this man and I said to him man haddathak who told you this hadith he said a person in a place called Wasit and he's still alive and he look at he's going all around the, the world and he's following this chain so he said to him, Man haddathak, who told you this hadith? Or he traveled to him. And the man said, Haddathani shaykhun bil Basra. The shaykh in al Basra told me this hadith. Off to Basra. He goes to Basra. He said, Haddathani shaykhun bi Baghdad. A shaykh in Baghdad told me this hadith. So he traveled to Baghdad. He said, so the shaykh took me by the hand and he entered me a house and there were a group of the Sufis and with them was a shaykh. 
And this shaykh, he said, this is the shaykh who told me this hadith. And this Sufi shaykh, he is the one who told me this hadith. So I said to him, Ya Shaykh, man haddathak? Who told you this hadith? He said, Lam yuhaddithni ahad. Nobody told me this hadith. However, we saw the people, qad raghibu anil Qur'an. The people didn't want to learn the Qur'an anymore. So wada'na, we fabricated this hadith so that these people would turn their faces towards the Qur'an. This is the situation of the, these groups from Ahl Bid'ah. This is the reality of what they do. They say, lahu wala We lie for him, but we don't lie against him. We don't lie about him, we lie for his sake. For the sake of the Prophet ﷺ, we lie. And the man openly, he came into the man, the man is sitting in the tent with a group of the Sufiya. He says to him, who told you this hadith? He says, nobody told me this hadith, I made it up. So he knew that this hadith was fabricated. And then we have the narration of Shu'bah that Ibn Hibban narrated with his isnad to Abi Nasr, Ibn Hammad, Al-Warraq, Al-Bajali, that he said, we were at the door of Shu'bah ibn Al-Hajjaj and with me were a group of people who were revising the sunnah. So I said, حدثنا إسرائيل بن عبد إسحاق عن عبد الله بن عطاء عن عقبة بن عن عقبة بن عامر عن النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم أنه قال من توضأ فأحسن الوضوء دخل من أي أبواب الجنة شاء. He said, Israel ibn Abi Ishaq narrated to us from Abdullah ibn Ata, from Uqba ibn Amr, from the Prophet ﷺ that he said, whoever makes wudu, and he does his wudu perfectly, he will enter whichever door of Jannah he wishes. So Shu'ba came out, while I was narrating this hadith. So he slapped me. Then he said, Ya Majnoon, you insane person. Have you heard Abu Ishaq? Narrating a hadith from Abdullah ibn Atah from Uqba ibn Amr. He said, Are you crazy? You've heard a hadith with this chain of narration? He said, I heard Abdullah ibn Atah. Shu'ba said, Or he said, Abdullah ibn Atta heard from Uqba ibn Amr. Then the narrator said, yani Did Abdullah ibn Atta hear from Uqba ibn Amr? So it was said, Shh, be quiet. And he said, I will not be quiet. Then it was said, O Shu'bah, Abdullah ibn Atah is alive in Makkah. And Abdullah ibn Atah is alive in Makkah. So Shu'bah traveled all the way to Makkah. And he met Abdullah ibn Atah. 
So he said, the hadith of al-wudu. So he replied, Uqba ibn Amr. So Shu'ba said to him, Yarhamaka Allah. Sami'ta min. He said, may Allah have mercy on you. Did you really hear this hadith from Uqba ibn Amr? And Shu'ba is saying, I don't believe that Abdullah ibn Atah heard a hadith from Uqba ibn Amr. And I don't think this chain can be correct. And the way he deals with his students is different the way he deals with his teacher. He goes to his teacher, he says, Yarhamaka Allah. Allah have mercy on you. Did you hear this hadith from Uqba ibn Amr? He said, no, I did not hear this hadith from Uqba ibn Amr. Sa'ad ibn Ibrahim narrated this hadith to me. He said, so I came to Anas ibn Malik while he was in Hajj. And I asked him about Sa'ad ibn Ibrahim. So he said to me, he did not make Hajj this year. So when I finished my Hajj, I went, I went to Medina. And I traveled to Medina. In Shu'bah, traveled to Medina. So I met Sa'ad ibn Ibrahim. And I said to him, Hadith al-Wudu, this Hadith in Wudu, Did you narrate this hadith in wudu? He said, no. This we heard from Haddathani Ziyad Ibn Mikhraq. Shu'ba said, so I went to Basra. And Shu'ba now, he's started off in Iraq. He's gone to Mecca. From Mecca, he's gone to Medina. From Medina, he's gone to Basra. And he met this Ziyad. And he said, at this point, my, my color and he, like, had drained out of me. And he like, I was shahib alone. My clothes were dirty. And Shu'bah has been around the Islamic empire. From Iraq to Mecca, from Mecca to Medina, from Medina to Iraq. Again. And he said, I was, my color was all, I was all you know, discolored. And my, my clothes were all dirty. Kathir al-Sha'ar, and my hair was all disheveled. And this is all for the sake of a hadith that he's checking. And he said to me, Min Ain, where did you come from? He said, Fahaddathtuhu al-Hadith. I told him the hadith. He said, This is not your concern. And this narrator said to Shu'ba, "Is not your concern. Leave it." He said, "You have to." He said, "No, I'm not going to tell you about it until you go to the bathroom and you wash yourself and clean your clothes, and then you come to me. Then I will tell you about it." So he said, I went to the washroom and I cleaned myself and I cleaned my clothes. Then I came to him. Then he said to me, this hadith was narrated to me from Shahar ibn Hawshab, from Abi Rayhana. So Shu'ba said, this hadith went up and down. But it has no origin. لَيْسَ لَهُ أَصْلٍ 
And I realized that this hadith just was going round and round in circles and it never ever reached the companions of the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam هذا الحديث صعد it went up ثم نزل then it went down meaning I started looking for a tabi'i who heard it from Uqba ibn Amr from a sahabi and I ended up with a big pile of people and now it's going down and down and down and down and down and then he said at the end دمروا عليه ليس له أصل I realized this hadith has no origin from the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam This hadith is not from the ahadith of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam But look at the effort that Shu'ba made Because of one hadith One hadith that he heard it, it didn't sound right to him Like he heard a hadith, it doesn't sound, it doesn't sound like this hadith doesn't sound right and this narrator heard from Uqba ibn Amr We have never known him narrate any hadith from Uqba ibn Amr So Shu'ba is of the belief and this is important And this is called within the science of, of Al-Jahr al-Ta'adil Within the science of Al-Ruwah It's about knowing the teachers and the students of a shaykh Like for every shaykh you should know who his teachers were and who his students were So he said that Abdullah ibn Ata, I don't know that his teacher was Uqba ibn Amr. He's not from the teachers that I knew for Abdullah ibn Ata. This doesn't sound right to me because as I know, Abdullah ibn Ata never heard any ahadith from Uqba ibn Amr. He heard from so-and-so, from so-and-so, but he never heard from Uqba ibn Amr. Then they went around and around and around and around. Until he realized this hadith is just taking me in circles, it has no origin. Like we say for the ahadith, la asla lahu, it has no origin. And this is, uh, and the, a lot of the ahadith that are passed around today on WhatsApp and Facebook that are sent to you, they are like this, la asla lahu. And they have no origin. Like you can't even find a chain of narration to say that it's mawdu'ah. Yani. It's just somebody made it up in his house and sent it on WhatsApp to everyone and they forwarded it to everyone and they forwarded it to everyone until it came to you. And then you look at it and you don't even find the hadith has no asl in it, has no chain. You don't even call it fabricated. The scholars don't call it fabricated. They say, لا أصل له. It doesn't even have a chain of narration. And it's at least a fabricated hadith, it has a chain of narration where you can spot the person who made it up. But these ahadiths just go around and it has la asla lahu. It has no, nothing at all that is established for this hadith. No chain, no narration. It's not in any of the books of hadith. It was just made up by someone one day sitting in their living room. Like that sheikh we heard uh, who made up that hadith in a tent. And he just made it up. So when this started to happen, fabricated ahadith and people making up hadith with not narrating a hadith with proper chains of narration then this caused the tabi'een to travel from city to city to confirm a hadith or to reject a hadith and there's a there's a cumulative effect in this 
there's a cumulative effect. What do we mean by this cumulative effect? You imagine you spend your life doing this. Your whole life. And Shu'ba ibn al-Hajjaj al-Wasiti, rahimahullah ta'ala, he spent his whole life doing this. Every time he hears a hadith he doesn't know, he goes and travels and checks it. Every time he hears a hadith, he, he checks again who tries to find it a high chain. And he's going around, traveling around the world doing this. What does that person develop? They develop almost what you would call a sixth sense for the authenticity of hadith. They develop a knowledge of the narrators which are reliable and which are not because they spent their whole life doing it. And they give the example of As-Sayrafi, the person who is the, uh, the, I mean, the trader in, in gold or in precious metals. To the point that it was said to, I mean, some, of these, some of the imams of hadith were accused of magic. Why were they accused of magic? He said, Wallah, I go to you, and you say to me, this hadith is da'if. You just say to me, I tell you the hadith, you just look at me and go, da'if. It's not, it's not authentic. Then I go to this other person in another city and say to the hadith, and he says, da'if. You people are communicating using the jinn. And you, you people are, are like, it's sihr. He said, it's not like this. It's like the sayrafi. Like the person who spent his whole life just with gold. He looks at the gold and he goes fake. Doesn't even measure it. He doesn't even, he just touches it, looks at it, he goes fake. Because he spent his whole life with gold. He knows gold. He knows when it's fake. He knows the quality of it. He knows the weight of it. He just looks at it and says, fake. This didn't happen instantly. This happened after years and decades of studying and studying and studying and studying a hadith and traveling and traveling all around the world. How many miles did Shu'ba clock up on his journeys of around the Islamic empire from city to city to city to city? Listen, each city he's hearing more hadith, he's checking, he's revising, he's going back and checking and revising and going back and checking and revising and confirming and then coming back again. Eventually you develop an incredible knowledge of narrators and a hadith. And that's why the science of al-jarh al-ta'adil, of approving narrators and criticizing narrators, is a science where very few people spoke about it. Like if you gather the number of people who actually spoke on the topic of al-jarh al-ta'adil, you see the numbers are very, very small. People say the imams of Jahr al-Ta'adil, you can count them on two hands. Like very small. Because this didn't come like from, any from nowhere. This came from spending their whole lives checking narrators. Till it came to the point where they had a very good idea of which narrator was correct and which narrator wasn't correct. And which narrator memorized and which narrator didn't memorize. And they knew all of his teachers and all of his students. And they knew which of his students memorized better than the others. And which of his teachers he was reliable from and which of his teachers he wasn't reliable from. And they knew what happened to him in his old age. And whether he changed his memory. Or they knew what happened to him after certain things happened like he lost his books. 
like it's narrated about Abdullah ibn Lahi'ah very famous and very very famous uh, narrator Abdullah ibn Lahi'ah that Abdullah ibn Lahi'ah the scholars differed over him like incredibly if you look in the books of Jarh al-Ta'adil like some of them say thiqa some of them say he's nothing and he's da'if what happened? The correct thing that happened is it's narrated that his books were destroyed at a certain time. He lost his books or they, I forgot, they were burnt or something. Something happened to his books. And whatever he narrated after that, he was weak in memory. But whatever he narrated from his books in the early days when he had them, he is reliable. And then the scholars divided the narrators from Abdullah ibn Lahia. And they said these four narrators heard from him before he lost his books. And these narrators heard from him after. And to that extent they went of checking. They even knew this guy, don't trust him when he narrates a hadith that comes from Sham. But if he narrates a hadith that comes from Iraq, he's reliable. And these are the students who he studied from in Iraq. And these are the teachers he studied from in Iraq. And these are the students who took from him. And these are the teachers he studied from in Sham. And these are the students who took from him. This is to the level they went in checking and cross-checking and referencing the ahadith. And there are many more things they used to do as well. From what the, the things they used to do is they used to test people. So they used to make people recite ahadith and test them and see whether they had memorized the hadith correctly or not. So one of the means they used to preserve the sunnah is testing people. From a hadith, he is memorized, but he wants to now the reliable narrator wants to test another narrator. So he asks him to narrate the hadith, and then he checks his memory, and then he's comparing all of the narrators and all of the different chains until he comes across this narrator is reasonable in his memory, this narrator is okay, this narrator is reliable. But then on top of that, there's something else. And that is that they didn't suffice with one person's opinion about the narrator, generally. And generally they did not suffice with one person's, one person's opinion. Instead they would cross-check the opinions of the scholars about one narrator. So you have some narrators that are, like some narrators are clear, everyone says they're reliable. And some narrators like uh, Muhammad ibn Ishaq, and again, if you go to the books of Jarh al-Ta'adil and you look up Muhammad ibn Ishaq, the famous seerah, the famous scholar of the seerah, very famous for being a scholar of the seerah, Muhammad ibn Ishaq. You see that Imam Malik called him a Dajjal. And Imam Malik and he called him by the worst term. He said, Dajjalun min al-Dajjajila. He said he is a liar from among the liars. And then you have other people say about him, Thiqatun Thiqa, he's absolutely reliable. I mean, how can this be? One of the one of the Imams says he is a liar from the from the Dajajila, from the from the big liars. He called him Dajjal. And the other narrator says about him, Thiqa follows all the people who tested him, all of his narrations, all of his things, and we see that. The reason that Imam Malik said this is there was something between him and Imam Malik. That he gave Imam Malik a lot of trouble. Something a lot of trouble for Imam Malik. So Imam Malik had very harsh words to say about him. But also when we look at him, he's not thiqa. He's not thiqa. 
So what did they, they come to the conclusion? They later. He's not absolutely reliable all of the time, but he's not known for lying about the Prophet ﷺ. And in seerah, he's more reliable than other things. But he does make mistakes in the middle category. And he's a fair narrator. You know, his hadith are probably hasan. But, and you have to be a little bit careful with him. He's not like perfectly reliable. About the book, Taqreeb al-Tahdeeb by Al-Hafidh ibn Hajar. What is Taqreeb al-Tahdeeb? It's effectively a summary of what all of the imams is. We divide the imams because you have to realize that in criticism of narrators, the imams are of one of three types. Or four types, to be honest. They are overly harsh. From them Shu'bah, who we heard about. From them Al-Imam Al-Nasai. They are known for being overly... He's weak, don't take from him. Maybe that's not so. They're known for being a bit harsh. So we gather all of the imams who are known for being harsh and we put all of their opinions about the narrator in one place. What's the benefit of that? If you can take it, you can take it to the bank, like they say. If an imam who is very, very harsh says about a narrator and he's very strict, he's like a strict teacher who points in his favor. Then we gather together the imams who are known for being. Mutasahirun They're known for being easy Like they will just say about a narrator He's thiqa and he has ahad Ibn Hibban And a tirmidhi They're known for being a little bit On the lenient side Because they would know A reason why Like as long as I don't see anything too bad from him He's reliable Then you have Al-Mu'tadilun, the people in the middle. Imam Al-Bukhari, Imam Ahmad. They're not known for being especially harsh or especially lenient. I mean, they're just balanced in the middle. And they often help us because they give us like a, the opinion of the people who are harsh because it goes, it goes together with the people who are in the middle. Likewise, if a person who's lenient says about a narrator that he's weak, then you know for sure that he is. The fourth category are people who we don't know whether they are harsh or lenient or in the middle because they don't mention too many narrators any. They're not like we can't we can't study their opinions and come across are they harsh or are they lenient? And that is the 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 later scholars, the people who gathered together people's opinions, like Al Hafid ibn Hajar and Imam al Dhahabi, people like that, people who came age of narration, yani after narrations had finished and the books were written and they came much later on and they checked people like Al-Hafidh ibn Hajar, Al-Imam al-Dhahabi, those people, we put them in their own category. Because they don't know. So the, this last one produces an output from the previous four. So we leave them to the end, we cover them over. Then we look and we make a decision. We say, well, I think this person in a certain people. All of the statements, we gather them in one place. Then we uncover what did Al-Hafidh ibn Hajar, what did Al-Dhahabi say? And we see, does our opinion agree with Al-Dhahabi or not? And then we judge. This is like, how did he explain what he said? And then you look and see, did you make a mistake? Or do you think that that imam made a mistake and you come to a conclusion about the narrator? Since the earliest days, since the time of the Sahaba, they were putting in place the framework for the sunnah to be preserved and protected. And after this is not possible for a person to come along. And that other part of discussion that we haven't had is the discussion about 
the writing of the sunnah. Because until now, we've just talked about the sunnah being preserved verbally. Even though we've seen the efforts to which people went to preserve the verbal sunnah. We also need to ask ourselves regarding the writing of the sunnah and how is to prove that writing began in the time of the Prophet ﷺ. Because what would these Orientalists have you believe? These Orientalists would have you believe, wrote down his Sahih, or until Imam Malik wrote his Muatta. Nobody knew what a pen was. And this is a lie. But it's not surprising. Because these are of a certain kind of evil heart. To spend your whole life studying Islam and not to become a Muslim. And that's why it's very sad in these days that we see some people. It has an Orientalist teacher who teaches Islamic finance. Wallahi, Akhwan, what good are you going to get from someone who spent his life studying Islam and he's still Catholic? I can't understand. I'm not saying he doesn't have some knowledge about Islamic finance. He obviously does. He's a professor on the topic. But wallah, it hurts me to see people traveling to Kathir. That's just, that, that pains the heart, wallahi. That pains the heart. Not to say that the non-Muslims haven't contributed to the science of Islam. Wallahi, it's, uh, this uh, is called al-mu'jam al-mufahras. The, uh, it's an index of the Qur'an and an index of the ahadith. And... Uh, one or both of them, I don't remember, was written by an Orientalist. And it stems away from the Qur'an. And with the intention of like, now you don't need to read the Qur'an. Because everything you need to know, it's just here in this book. What did the Muslims do? In any case, they took this mu'jam and they checked it, verified it and printed it. And gave it to the Muslim world. Stop memorizing the sunnah? Nobody. But alhamdulillah, we benefited from their, yani, from their efforts. And like this, we also benefit from, like, for example, Lane's lexicon. Because he didn't die as a Muslim. But wallahi, it is a, a work that is... And a Muslim would have been proud to have done this work in his life. Lane's lexicon. Lating the major Arabic dictionaries, the classical Arabic dictionaries into English and producing a summary. So he gives you the Arabic word and then he gives you a summary of, brings you the meaning of the word and he translates it into English. And for anyone who wants to learn Arabic, this is a must-have book. So Orientalist, it didn't benefit, it didn't benefit. Allah, la yambaghi that's not, that's not befitting for a person. It's not befitting for a person to be a student of a disbeliever. And even some of the translations they did of the Quran, like Arbery, I would not advise this to an ordinary Muslim to read it. Because it was written by a disbeliever. And you don't know how much batil he introduced. Check their translation. His English is amazing. And Arbery's English is absolutely outstanding. So there's no harm in uh, you like... If you are strong in conveying the translation.
even though yani, I don't believe his tafsir or his understanding of the Quran is anything. His tafsir is nothing. Because in the first place, yani, like doesn't know anything about Islam. He doesn't know the meaning of Qul Allahu Ahad. How is he going to make tafsir of the Quran? But still, at the end of the day, yani, is, like his, his English. So you can, yani, like if a person has good knowledge of tafsir, and they have a reference from, for example, Muhsin Khan and other like reliable English translations, and then they use Arbery to, and it convey this is something that I cannot bring myself to like to ever do, like to sit at the feet of an of an Orientalist and to call him Sheikh. And he, this doesn't go with the Sunnah. The Prophet said, make take them walk on the side. And don't give them any, and then you're going to sit at his feet, like and say Sheikh, our Sheikh. What do you say about this? Our Sheikh, what do you say about this? Allah, yani this is, maybe their situation is different. Sometimes you can't find that yani knowledge. You can only find it from someone who has some bid'ah in him, but the bid'ah doesn't reach a level which is really, really, like for example, doesn't take him outside of Islam. You don't want to dishonor yourself by sitting at the feet of someone like that and calling him our Sheikh. And it's not, it's not nice yani, to do. Anyways, back to the topic of... That the sunnah was written in the time of the Prophet ﷺ. But was it written completely? Was it written totally to the point that the whole sunnah was written like the Qur'an? What is the, the, the confusion here? The confusion here... Example, it's narrated by numbers, number, number of the companions... And the only one of them that is authentic is the hadith of Abu Sa'id. You can remember this. And out of all of these, Al-Khudri. That the Prophet ﷺ said, لا تكتبوا عني Do not write anything from me. ومن كتب عني غير القرآن Let him erase it. فليمحه Let him erase it. And this hadith is narrated by in Sahih Muslim. was criticized by Imam al-Bukhari by saying that this hadith is not from the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam case. Let's just presume that this hadith is authentic. It's in Sahih Muslim, so of Abu Sa'id, not from the statement of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. But in any case, We will say for the benefit or for the purpose of this uh, uh, discussion that this hadith is authentic. Then we have a number of answers to this which we're going to come across bit by bit. First of all, this hadith was not said to the general companions and it was not said to every Qur'an. Why might the Prophet say to the people who used to write the Qur'an don't write anything other than the Qur'an. Because as we said, these are a people that they might include some of the sunnah within the Qur'an. And in reality, this is likely to have happened. Quotations of the Qur'an that are very far, like that are very, uh, yani, uh, they don't follow the normal pattern of the Qur'an at all. والصلاة الوسطى صلاة العصر 
guard the prayers, especially the middle prayer, Salatul Asr. Irisha made a note in her mushaf of what the Prophet said. And she made a note for herself that a Salatul Wusta, the middle prayer, is Salat. And it's at least a hadith, if not a part of the Quran. And I'm not negating it being a part of the Quran. It's possible that the Prophet ﷺ read the Quran that way sometimes. But because of the prayer, but it was found in her mushaf. It was found in her personal copy of the Quran that she wrote, Hafidhu ala salawati was salatil wusta, salatil asr. The asr prayer. Or it's possible that Aisha wrote this as a note. Obviously, after the Quran became reliable and became like written down. So the first one, because if you're writing the Quran, the danger is you might write some of the Sunnah along with it, and the people may become muddled up. Bearing in mind that writing, like the people who wrote the Quran, were reliable at writing, but it was not common that people were reliable in writing. It was not normal that people would be very, very good at writing. After the Qur'an was completed and gathered together, those same people who were forbidden from writing used to write a hadith. They used to write a hadith after the Qur'an had been gathered. People who used to write a hadith in the time of the Prophet ﷺ. From them Abdullah ibn Amr ibn al-As, as we're going to hear, from them Ali ibn Abi Talib nobody narrated more hadith than me apart from Abdullah ibn Amr because he used to write things down and I did not used to write things down so this tells us what I said in some narrations uktub write down for wallahi nothing comes out of this except the truth so the Prophet ﷺ to some people reconcile between these things. First of all, the narrations to not write the sunnah are not strong in the first place. The strongest of them is the narration of Abu Sa'id al-Khudri. And even that, the narrations about not writing the sunnah are in the first place not strong. But even if we accept them, there are other narrations that the Prophet ﷺ commanded the companions to write down. Don't write the sunnah. But if you're not writing the Qur'an, you can write the sunnah. The other is to say, write the Qur'an, the final kind of copy of the Qur'an that was produced, and then write the sunnah. And there is another, uh, any, uh, there are other uh, interpretations, don't write the sunnah. And there are other things which will come to me in a minute, other ways the scholars join between them, other things the scholars said. As a way to join between uh, these, uh, these two things and, and the sunnah And those who are not so proficient And not so comfortable They should only write the Quran Like only write what they are sure of And they are comfortable with And not that they, those of them who like who he, As for you I don't fear that you're going to mix the Quran and the sunnah So you can write both That is another way of joining between them I need to say that the Prophet ﷺ said to certain companions, don't write, and, to, and others would not have mixed up. But you have to bear in mind that with the Qur'an and the Sunnah, as is clear from the narrations of, which we did in Ulum al-Qur'an, about the, by writing, no, it was by memorization. When they gathered the people together to join, to gather the Qur'an in the time of Abu Bakr, and then in the time of Uthman, 
radiallahu anhu gathered the huffaz of the Qur'an who the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam approved of their memorization and then they gathered the writing and they compared what was in the hearts to what was in the writing. How do we know? No, because the Qur'an was revised by a committee of companions all of whom learnt it by memory from the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. There was another reason that some of the scholars mentioned, and this is mentioned from Tabi'een or the generations after them, that they used to prohibit their students from writing. But the reason for them prohibiting their students from writing, how is it that Sufyan used to write and he used to forbid his, his students from writing? Rather what happened is He said strong Because what did we say As soon as you start to rely upon writing Your memorization will go Like the memorization bone That will go from you And instead they will end up memorizing The way we memorize today Which is we have the writing We read it, we close it, we memorize it Then we check the writing, then we close it So some of them used to forbid their students from writing in order to encourage them to maintain this gift in memorization. And yet they used to write. They continued to rely upon writing, as Sufyan said, if they continued to rely upon writing, and Sufyan Thawri, if they continued to rely upon writing, whatever was said and conveyed to the people. And it's narrated from Sufyan Thawri, Bi'sa. What a terrible means of. And Sufyan al Thawri used to say, What a terrible and what a terrible receptacle of knowledge is no paper. And he advising the people, memory is going to, is going to go. So let's have a look at some of the authentic narrations regarding. Writing. Except what came from Abdullah ibn Amr. Because he used to write and I didn't used to write. Out of interest, most of the hadith, we don't have that many hadith from Abdullah ibn Amr. They haven't, everything has come down. But one of the main sources of uh, the hadith of Abdullah ibn Amr is this chain of narration which is famous from, if I'm not mistaken, Amr ibn Shu'ayb from his father, from his father's grandfather who was Abdullah ibn Amr ibn al-As. This is a famous chain of narration. Father's grandfather, be careful about that. Some of the scholars said this chain is, is weak. Why did they say it's weak? They said that the grandfather of Amr ibn Shu'ayb from his father from his father's grandfather his father's grandfather not his grandfather it is from his father's grandfather who is Abdullah ibn Amr ibn al-As so the chain is authentic 
this chain of narration is most most of the ahadith and also from Abu Hurairah until he said Uktuburi Abi Shah write down and he told the people to told the people to write down what he was saying in his sermon in the conquest of Mecca. And from the hadith of Ibn Abbas that the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said in his sikab and he bring me uh, it's difficult to explain the kitab and he bring me something to write upon but in the same sense of the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam it means someone to write me uh, someone to write down. I will write for you something which you will never be misguided after it. أَكْتُبُ لَكُمْ كِتَابًا لَا تَضِلُّ بَعْدَهُ This could not be from the Qur'an. Because if it, the Qur'an, it's not possible for the Prophet ﷺ to, to, uh, like, to say like now on his deathbed or bring is from his sunnah. And from the hadith of Abdullah ibn Amr ibn al-As, he said, Kuntu aktub and the people they used to make fun of him they used to say Muhammad is only a man like the disbelievers they used to say to him Muhammad is only a man he gets angry he has good write down by the one whose hand my soul is in nothing came from me except the truth clear that the Prophet allowed Abdullah ibn Amr to write while the Qur'an was being revealed. The Qur'an was being revealed. So it wasn't the case that it was written after the Qur'an was completed. He used to write all the time. And the disbelievers used to say to him, why are you writing from this man? And he, sometimes he gets angry. He just, In some narrations, nothing came from here except the truth. And he pointed to his mouth. So this tells us that the compilation from Ali ibn Abi Talib, I don't have it in front of me, but the narration of Ali ibn Abi Talib, that when the people used to indicate to Ali that he had some secret knowledge, that Ali had some secret promise from the Prophet ﷺ, and some secret message from the Prophet ﷺ, Ali used to say to them, piece of paper and on the piece of paper I remember one of the things was written is the zakah amounts that he had Ali had written camels for one camel and all of the it's, it's, it's not easy to memorize any, how many like it's, it has a lot of like detail in it so Ali radiallahu an wrote down a, all I have is what from the Prophet is what is written on this piece of paper or in this collection of papers and when the people looked at it it had various things on it and one of the things I so Ali ibn Abi Talib is telling the people you people think that the messenger of Allah وسلم, told me I have to be the first Khalifa and that I'm going to be the one in charge and that I'm going to be the, the one who conveys the one that's all that I have is what is written on this paper there are many many other narrations and the author I am reading from and I'm just weak narrations they are even more than this. These are just the Sahih narrations. As for the weak narrations, there are many of them that the companions used to write. 
And it may be that some of them support the others. So level of being Hassan لغيره. And they raise to the level of being Hassan because they support each other. But he didn't mention the weak narrations. But he said there are many, many weak narrations that the writing wasn't widespread among the companions. It wasn't something that everybody did. Writing the sunnah wasn't something that everybody did. Used to, and who were very proficient at writing, and who used to, probably they were not given the job of writing the Quran. As a, as a people who used to write, those who generally, even though Ali ibn Abi Talib is probably in the camp of both, and he used to write both. But generally, any of the companions who are very proficient at writing, give us any lack of confidence in the sunnah. Because as we said, the memorization was there among the companions. And their caution and their care and their checking and their tra- and the memorized the companions with the strongest memory, testing those who they doubted their memory, and so on. There's another point Is that Abu Sa'id al-Khudri said We know he was the one who said The Prophet ﷺ said Do not write anything from me except the Quran Abu Sa'id himself He said we didn't used to write anything Apart from the Quran And the Tashahud What does that tell you? That even the people memorized Or they, like they hadn't committed to memory And they wanted to write it down even Abu Sa'id al-Khudri used to write the He wrote down the, the hadith regarding the tashahud And no doubt they mixed into each other and, uh, and confused about this is Al-Khatib Al-Baghdadi Rahimullah Ta'ala who died in 463 after the Hijrah he wrote a book called Taqiyanians and the Tabi'een and who wrote and who didn't write and how did the knowledge become written down but one of the things that I want you to there is no authentic prohibition on writing the Quran except the hadith of Abu Sa'id al-Khudri which is narrated by Muslim and al-Bukhari and Muslim differed over whether it was from the statement of Abu Sa'id and even the hadith of Abu Sa'id Bukhari and Muslim differed over whether Abu Sa'id narrated it from the Prophet or whether it was his own statement don't write anything from me except the Quran and Bukhari said this is from Abu Sa'id it's not from the Prophet and the Prophet never stopped people from writing the sunnah Abu Sa'id said to his students Don't write anything from me except the Quran Muslim said said, Don't write anything from me except the Quran And whoever writes from me other than the Quran Let him rub it out That the beginning The second conclusion That the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam During his life 
affirmed the permissibility of writing the sunnah. It's the second point that Al-Khatib of the Prophet was to write the sunnah. The third point that Al-Khatib al-Baghdadi mentioned Fourteen of the sunnah expanded every generation. More people wrote the sunnah in the time of the tabi'een than wrote it in the time of the companions. And more people wrote it towards the end of the tabi'een than the people who wrote it in the time of the tabi'een and so on. Uh, But uh, Al-Khatib comes to the conclusion that whichever of the companions any Sufyan, for example, a Thawri or whatever, then stopping their students from writing had nothing to do with what the Prophet said. It was for other reasons, including people relying upon writing and stopping memorization in place as time went on. And by the time you probably get to around about 100, 150 years after the Hijrah, everybody writes. But still, what you see is there was a fear. From those people who lived at that time Let's say from 100 to 150 There was a big fear The fear was Is that clear? And what happened is that they said Those people who lived in that Grey sort of interim period After that everyone Is like proficient at writing Quite a few people know how to write And it's common But still you fear that we're going to lose the ability to memorize. And memorization is what is a kind of, sort of, uh, the sort of middle generation, or the later generation of the tabi'een. They are st- still telling their students, don't write. Of being able to transmit things by memory. And not think about the Qur'an. Like to turn away from the Qur'an or to not give proper attention to the Qur'an. important. It's also really, really important that we differentiate between two things. We differentiate between means generally to write something down. And tasneef means to, to author a book. This is really important. Because, and you answer the first person to make tadween of the sunnah was al-imam al-zuhri, for example. This is not correct. Because tadween means just generally to write things down. Of ahadith. Who was that? This is where we start getting into the question. Who is the first person to author a proper book? From the early books we have Muatta al-Imam Malik and others. So when the author wrote a book of hadith until Muatta al-Imam Malik. Or uh, around that time, a little bit before me. This is not correct that nobody wrote a book. The men had notes, they had things with a hadith written on in the time of the Prophet ﷺ. But as for collecting them in a book and having chapters, you know, Kitab al-Tahara, the chapter... Uh, Kitab al-Nikah And organizing it And putting it into a book Then this happened Towards the early uh, Stages of yani, Around this yani, so, Somewhere A thing that There's a difference between 
writing down a hadith and between authoring a book in a hadith. So if someone says to you the first book in Islam was authored 150 something, so inshallah ta'ala we're going to go into this in more detail bi-idhnillahi ta'ala. Uh, we have a number of narrations to go through through each of this. Sunnah reach us in, we know like now we have like for example Sahih Bukhari, Sahih Muslim. How did it get to there? About how the sunnah was written down to reach there. And writing, remember, it became more and more relied upon as time went on. As time went on, writing in front of him. And when his writing was taken away, and I think his books were burnt, he lost his books in a fire, then he became unreliable. This didn't happen until a very late time. Writing was just an extra way to confirm what they had already memorized. But actually their memory was stronger than their writing. So you see like a pendulum. It like shifts. It shifts from one way of preserving. In the time of the Tabi'een, majority is, is memory and some people are starting to rely on their writing. By the time of the next generation, I don't know, 50-50, 60-40, I mean between memorization. Now the writing is really important and people rely upon it. And we don't need a chain of narration. This is the last point I'm going to mention today. We don't need a chain of narration from important question. Because someone may say, but why haven't you continued the isnad? I'm not saying there isn't an isnad. I and mean, many people have asanid to Sahih al-Bukhari. But we check the narration from me to Imam al-Bukhari. And why don't you say to me, Muhammad Tim, give me your chain of narration that reaches me. Check them. Like, why don't we go through and check each narrator? Jarh, ta'adil, who is he narrate? Is he authentic or not? Because the books became muntashira. They became available in every place. Just like there is no need to, for me to give you my narration of the Qur'an from me to the Prophet ﷺ, there is no need for that. I can do it, but there is no need for it. If I read you an ayah and I read it wrong, you can go to your copy of the Qur'an and you can show me that it's wrong. Likewise, if I read you a hadith from Sahih al-Bukhari and I read it wrong, you can send different people and they've been copied and sent out and, and copied and, you know, like, and transmitted and passed on, that you don't have any doubt about the authenticity of Sahih al has been preserved reliably until today. And that's where we start to talk about something called the end of Asr al-Riwayah, the end of narrating hadith who studied with me, they can narrate a hadith from them to the Prophet ﷺ with a senate. But we're not majorly concerned with that senate. It doesn't, we don't like look into it with a magnifying glass. It's going to reach Musnad al-Imam Ahmad. It's going to reach Al-Tabarani. It's going to reach Al-Bayhaqi. It's going to reach Al-Tirmidhi. It's going to reach Al-Bukhari. It's going to reach Muslim. And we already have those preserved. The scholars differ over it. Maybe 400, 450 years after the Hijrah, that we no longer study the Asanid. So Imam al-Bukhari died 256 years after the Hijrah. Nad was the most important thing. But once you get to around about 350, 400, maybe even 450, you start to see by then, nobody has any concerns. Books that are reliable and well spread out, and we narrate from that book to the Prophet and that we will talk about in more detail, bi-idhnillahi ta'ala. And Allah Azza wa Jalla